Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Two Trees Down Under edition. We have with us one of the world's finest. Well, I'm not sure what you are finest of. I was going to roll with human beings, but, you know, we'll put you in a category all on your own. The one, the only, Tim Stedman. Tim, we're so excited to have you here with us. Uh, how are things in the land down under? Oh, well, good day, folks. And, uh, yeah, things are going great down here, actually. Uh, it is a chilly but sunny winter's morning where I am, and... Uh, the, the beauty of creation is all around. You might actually hear uh, birds chirping in the background if they manage to get through the uh, through the walls. Now, I, when you talk about the birds are chirping and uh, the goodness of God's creation, that is not what we hear about Australia wildlife uh, over here. From what I understand, you are in a fight for survival with duck-billed platypi and uh, dingoes. How, how often do you find yourself... Uh, fighting spiders of Mirkwood size uh, on your daily commutes to and from work? Well, uh, let me just say that there was a deadly spider in my kitchen only two days ago. Um, I took care of that pretty quickly. And I used to have a dingo. No, you had a dingo? For real. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is one of the few places in the world where and, and specifically this this part of the country where we it's legal to have a dingo as a pet. Wow. Here I thought you were going to tell me, no, we don't actually deal with that. And here you are fighting them off in your sink and you have a dingo in your backyard. What what did you name this dingo? What was the what was the name? Uh Lucy. Lucy. How did you kill yeah. the spider is what I want to know. Did you set fire to the house? Did you kill it? I set fire to the spider. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But they can get pretty big. I remember, um, well, I mean, I don't know how big the spiders get there, but when I was in Iraq, camel spiders can get huge, and I mean, they're terrifying. They typically don't run at mm-hmm. you. They try to get in the shade, but but uh, big spiders are intimidating. No, I'm, I'm opposed to, I, I mean, I appreciate what they do. I dislike mosquitoes and blood-sucking creatures, and so I like that spiders eat those. But I, I, I need them to stay out of my zone. I need them to stay outside in spider world uh, and not, not in my house. So I, I have a very strict rule about about. You're such an introvert. I am. I don't even like, you know, God's creation is wonderful. It's beautiful. But stay outside. Yeah. You know, there's, there's no reason for the serpent to come into my garden. Uh, it, it's messed things up already. I, I hear that. So you're, you're enjoying your morning over there. Have you got your, your cup of coffee brewed? Oh, I had one. It's it's long gone. A long gone. What's 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 the preferred coffee for you in the morning? Are you a coffee snob? Are you? Uh, what's what's what wakes you up in the morning, my friend? Uh, being a man of limited means, uh, any coffee is good coffee. Hot coffee, I like it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we want to uh, encourage you guys to check out Tim's podcast. Uh, it's called Answers to Giant Questions, and it is just what you would think it is. It's answers to really big questions, but he also talks about the giants in the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. If you're into Michael Heiser's content, you'll appreciate uh, our friend Tim and his approach to Scripture. And uh, he has uh, an ability to pull nuggets out of thin air almost, uh, he'll talk about a text that I've read over and uh, and just didn't really focus on, and he'll say, hey, did you see this? And then I think to myself, where was my attention span? Because I should have noticed that. And so I, I enjoy listening to you each week. If you haven't listened to his most recent episode, you were talking about the book of Enoch and uh, the different quotes right. from the book of Enoch in the New Testament. Uh, why don't you just share a little bit about that? Why, why the interest in the Book of Enoch, my friend? Well, I think that once you start to see that certain New Testament authors uh, don't make any secret of the fact that they're referring to Enoch, so you've got guys like Peter and Jude, you start to ask the question, well, is it just those guys or is everybody else familiar with this stuff too? And through the work of a bunch of 
notable scholars, which some of our listeners will have heard of, I started to sort of gain the, the confidence, I suppose, to, to dare to look into these things for myself because I was brought up with the idea that uh, Enoch was some sort of bad book that you shouldn't uh, even read. And when I realised that the New Testament authors were reading it, I was like, well, let's just see what they were getting out of it. Mm. And the more I looked, the more I found and... I eventually realized that every single author of the New Testament was using material from First Enoch. Now, that was something I did not know until I listened to your podcast last week. Every single book in the New Testament quotes from Enoch? You're not just making that up? Well, I quote. Um, let's, let's try and clarify a little. I would, I would definitely say that all of the authors uh, use First Enoch. Well, and that's even more than I would have thought. And uh, and if you don't believe me, go listen to his podcast. He quotes them and then gives you the reading right out of Enoch. And uh, it it stopped me in my tracks. I was like, oh, I never have thought about where that line came from, or you know where where that that thought would have originated. And I, I really enjoyed it. So you were you were on your game last week, brother. Good job. Thank you. Yeah, it was a really fun uh, exercise to put that together. Now, your co-host on there, is, uh, is is he a buddy of yours? How did you guys get together? Oh, yeah. I've known Chris over 20 years. And uh, we sort of, um, we kind of live separate lives these days. Like, you know, we don't see each other all the time or anything. Um, but this is a great way to keep in contact. And so, uh, yeah, every so often we will catch up in person, but he lives a fair distance away, so that's not easy. How far but, uh, is yeah, Australian great. fair distance? Uh, well, let's say that if it takes you more than an hour to drive in the car, you'd need considerable incentive. But then that that's all relative. I mean, if I want to drive to another capital city from here, that's three days. Three days driving. And well, that's got biblical <laughs> yeah. significance to it. So, I mean, I, I appreciate what you guys are doing down there. Uh, now, you're in, you go. in Perth, which is kind of famous for being a laid-back uh, town. And uh, uh, do you find yourself at the beach a lot? Are you a beach-going guy? Are you a, a city running around? What's what? What makes you excited? What What are you into, Tim? I do enjoy the beach, and that's why I chose to live near it. Because uh, we could have lived in the in the countryside uh, on the other side of town, where uh, the spiders grow the size of your hand. Yeah, I can see why you didn't choose that. Yeah, yeah. So the beach was appealing uh, <laughs> because you know sharks don't live in your house. You are speaking my language. I'm a hundred percent in favor of leaving the creatures in their natural habitat. Although kangaroos yeah, yeah, do look cool, I'm not going to lie to you. They they seem awesome. My my only connection to Australia, other than you, and we were talking a minute ago, has been the hours I've spent watching Bluey episodes and trying to be as good a father as Bingo. Not Bingo. What's the dog's name? The dad's hmm. name in Bingo's the kid. I don't watch Bluey. I know that's really sad. I hear about it all the time, but I've never seen one episode. Oh, man. It'll come to me later. That's okay. Now I'm I'm not going to yeah. get the mega yeah. fan award of of Bluey, but anyway, that that's my goal. He seems like a good dog, a good dad, and I want to be yeah. like that. So I have a, a newborn, so I am waking up every three hours and helping my wife because I'm a good good father, uh, helping her to feed the baby. And so, if I seem like I'm crazy, I just haven't slept, Tim. I'm trying really hard to be a functioning adult here in, in society, but I am tired. And uh, there have been so many dirty diapers in trying to figure out how to maneuver this. Now, you have uh, three kids. Are they older, younger? Yeah, so my three, uh, between 10 and 13. Oh, that sounds like you don't deal with dirty diapers anymore. You are living the life I hope to live. 
No, the youngest still loves watching Bluey, though. Uh, well, Bluey's funny. I, I enjoy watching it. That's all right. Well, that's my excuse for watching. That's important. <laughs> so now you aren't in ministry uh, as far as uh, full-time. That's what you do for a living. You're normal people out there working hard yeah. to make a living, but you have a real passion uh, for the Word of God, and you have taken that uh, great commission to go and make disciples and cast your voice out there globally, and the Lord, I think, is really blessing uh, what you're doing. You've been a blessing to me, uh, and uh, we definitely wouldn't run into each other at the supermarket on any sort of regular basis, but I just wanted to say thank you for what you do. Uh, but I, I do have a question for you, uh, and that is that I, I have never heard any podcast ever that loves genealogies like answers to giant questions. Tim, what is going on with genealogies? Because most people uh, skip them because we can't pronounce the names and we don't know what's going on in there, and it feels like filler. Uh, why should the church be reading genealogies? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I do love the genealogies. Uh, I think the first key to uh, getting an appreciation of the genealogies is to realize that Scripture, for the most part, is a collection of stories, right? And particularly when we start in Genesis, we're getting one story after another. And the initial temptation would be to see the genealogies as the bit between the stories, Sort of, you've got you've got a start point, you've got an end point. Um, you have to get from the end of one story to the start of the next one. So, you know, how do we make the historical connection? Well, we chuck all these people in there so that you can see the historical link. Mm -hmm. And once we realise that genealogies actually function as stories in their own right, that changes things. What do you mean they function as stories in their own right? Because it seems so, to me the story is so-and-so had a baby and his name was, who also had a baby mm -hmm. and his name was. And I think most uh, Western Christians would struggle to see the story. Now, you've done a phenomenal job, and I'm kind of teeing the ball up here for you because I've been really blessed in hearing you break apart the genealogies and things. But I was missing a tremendous amount of meat uh, because I thought it was a bone, and I was ready to just toss it and move on to the story. Uh, what 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 should people be looking for in the genealogies? Yeah, all right. So if you listen to a lot of critical scholars, they will say, well, it's the formulaic stuff doesn't matter. It's where the exception to the rule is that you'll find the interesting things, and that's the whole point. So they'll draw attention to guys like Enoch because he doesn't die. You know, out of everybody in Genesis 5, they'll uh, live, they have kids, they die. Enoch doesn't, so the whole thing must be about Enoch. But there's a lot more going on when you realize that people in the ancient world were given their names in literature because of the way that they function in the literature. So there's a story being told in the names. Mm. So, so, yeah, you look at it. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Uh, like, let's say, uh, let's just pick one, like, like say, Jared, for example. Uh, I was really hoping you would pick Jared. Ah, uh, there you go. So, yeah, you've got this uh, idea of descent, which uh, comes from his name. Uh, then we find later, of course, that lots of people have built stories out of this. And they're talking about the uh, the, the watchers or, or the sons of God who came down uh, in Genesis six, and they brought that back into Genesis five, and and said, right, well, this is this is the background. Genesis five is laying the groundwork, right? But you can go further back because you go to Genesis four, and you've got people who are involved with all these uh, arts of civilization and the the technologies that. Uh, for Jews were believed to be the um, product of the teachings of these fallen angels. And we see them working out in these civilizations that rise and fall through Genesis 4 and 5. So somebody who has an interest in uh, the Watchers and the Giants, 
shouldn't, and this, this was me, I was in a hurry to jump to Genesis 6 to get to the exciting part. And I read right over mm-hmm. Jared and Methuselah and those guys. Uh, they, they were an oddity uh, to me more than they were um, something really to, to meditate on. Uh, what, what drew you to that, man? What, was that, were you just like, you know what, people are not talking about genealogies near enough. Or were you doing studies on your own, just looking up the meanings of the names? How, how did you get involved in that? Well, I think the first part of it was when you start reading the flood story and you keep coming up against things that don't make sense, you have to ask yourself the question, okay, well, have I understood the story so far? Right, so maybe if I wind back the clock a little bit, go back earlier in the text, do I get everything that's going on here? And I've been fortunate to come across some influential uh, teachers here and there. And one that I particularly like, and I don't um, necessarily agree with everything that he puts out, but I think uh, he's a great thinker and certainly inspired me. Um, a, an Orthodox, a former Orthodox priest um, by the name of Paul Tarazi who just is really gifted at um, approaching the Bible as a work of literature. And I don't necessarily is this subscribe same, 100%. Is this the same guy from uh, the Bible as Literature podcast? Yes. Tarazi Tuesday. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I love that show. Right. First of all, um, the man has the best voice ever. Absolutely I know, it's, hypnotizing it's, it's, voice. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and I, I'm super jealous uh, of his accent. You got to hear him. Yeah. Jacob. You, you, you would be impressed with him. Uh, you, you're kind of sitting over there making faces. I like the me. Australian voice. You know, John, you got a good, a good deep voice. You know, it's like, nah, I sound like Darth Vader or Tarazi, something. He, he has this middle Eastern kind of like he time traveled in from, uh, you know, I, I grew up with these guys. Let me tell you about how, how it was. And he's just, he's super good. Yeah. Yeah. Go yeah. Cause he's from Lebanon. So, yeah. so Tim, let me ask you this just from, from somebody who's fairly new at looking at the genealogies this way. Um, this is actually something I think John learned from you and then he passed it on to me. And as I was looking through chapter five of Genesis, so it seems like, you know, everyone had other sons and daughters, but there's, there's a name of one, um, you know, for me, it's like, oh, this must be the favorite and he's the one they're naming, but their name, the meaning of their name actually represents um, or tells a story about the gener- that generation. Is that is that kind of what you're saying? The meaning of the name of the person named uh, is kind of giving a story of what's happening in that time frame and the of the genealogy. Is that is that what you're saying? Uh, there's definitely a, an element where you will see that at play in the text, but then there's other reasons that they'll use names as well. So that's sort of a factor you've got to consider. Uh, but it's not necessarily going to be like the blanket rule of this is how we read the genealogies and every name functions the same way. Mm. So uh, as an example, if we go to Genesis 4, um, the, the, the first part of that after the Cain and Abel story, and that's not even a real genealogy. Like they're talking about aspects of civilization and, and what comes from the development of technology apart from the pursuit of God. Right. And talking about the destruction and the depravity and the chaos that comes from man's pursuit of uh, furthering himself independent of his creator. Yeah, and all that's yeah, out of those names. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating approach because you, you only recognize it at first when you realize that these guys who are listed in, in that little section, I think it's 4 verse 18, uh, the men are giving birth to their own children. Like that's obviously absurd because only women give birth, right? So there has to be another way to understand it. When you start thinking in terms of uh, the way we talk about things today, like you know, Henry Ford, the, uh, the father of the uh, mass-produced automobile, like nobody thinks he gave birth to a car, but that's the way we talk about it. And so when you start applying that kind of 
uh, understanding to those particular names right there in the genealogy because that's the only part in the whole Bible where it says that men gave birth to children. Yeah, one then of the you, things you that, that I, I really was, was blessed by in, in your teachings, Tim, has been that we shouldn't be reading this as though it was written by a modern Western thinking person. And to try not yeah. to figure out, you know, if I was writing the book of Genesis, what would I mean by making a list of people? But what did this mean to its original audience? Why has this been preserved? And, and why the, the list with this exact number and how does all that play out later in the Bible? There's a tremendous amount of riches in the details of these books and, and really one of the things that struck me, uh, and, and you can play off this, maybe I'm wrong, uh, is, is that they seem to have really viewed things through a sense of community, through a sense of who we are in our past uh, as, as a means of where we came from, whereas today the emphasis is on me, the individual. Uh, I, I separate everyone that ever came before me, and I'm going to stand on my own two feet uh, the ancients didn't really seem to do that. Their stories of their past were an important part of where they were in the present. And so when you get like the the 70 nations that are given or the story of Canaan uh, in, uh, after the flood, it's, it's, it's impressive to me how it all weaves together. It's, it doesn't seem like someone just sat down and invented a bunch of names and no one ever thought about it again. It, it seems to have been really important to the rest of the biblical uh, narrative and to the writers who were writing in a way that it resonated with them and it didn't with me. And that kind of caught me off guard because I, I began to wonder how many other things are am I skimming over because I don't view them as important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Particularly when we start to look at the first, well, let's just say the entire biblical narrative up to the flood story. That whole thing is designed to be read in such a way that we see ourselves in these characters and everybody is participating in this story. So they call it an archetypal narrative, right? So uh, Adam is the man, mm -hmm. but he also represents all of us and his children are to be seen in all of us. And the, the way that the whole uh, narrative progresses through the genealogies into the, um, the setup for the, for the flood story uh, in, in every situation there, we're reading this as an archetypal narrative where we are all participating and we all see ourselves in it all together. Yeah, I think one of the characters that really you see that with is Lamech. Uh, the the sheer pride of the Lamech character who kills a man for really having bothered him. Uh, and there's this real celebration of uh, might makes right uh, kind of a thing. Man, that, that speaks to every culture ever uh, that, that has to, to figure out what to do. Just because I can do something, does that make it right? Uh, and then the way that it plays off of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil story, you know, defining right and wrong for ourselves. Uh, I just I just want to say thanks, you know, for pointing it out. And I don't know why you decided to geek out on genealogies, but I'm glad you did. Uh, and uh, do you find yourself driving the forklift and just like running through the genealogies in your head, or or how does that work? Oh man, uh, I tell you what, I'm at at work most of the time. I'm just yeah mulling over these thoughts, just chewing through these ideas and, and trying to piece it all together, just reflecting on things I've read before and, and trying to make those connections. Um, because, you know, I, I'm not alone in this. Lots of people have been doing work on this for, uh, you know, hundreds if not thousands of years. And all I can do is, is try and get better acquainted with, with the research, with the uh, ancient worldview, and, I mean, you, you pick that up in Scripture. I mean, when you see uh, Paul talking about Christ as the, the new Adam, mm. right? I mean, where does he get that from? Like, he's drawing from that archetypal story, and, you know, he sees 
Christ as restoring all of us, not just one guy. And, you know, that's the whole reason that the the fall of man and, and that sin in the Garden of Eden um, can be undone, not just for one person, but for everybody. Right. Now, you not only have a podcast, Tim, but you also are the author of a book uh, called Answers to Giant Questions. Uh, would you talk to us a little bit about the book? What caused you to write it? What was your hopes? Uh, what kind of information should people um, be looking for in the book? Just just take a minute and talk about uh, your 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 baby there, the 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 book. Yeah, sure. So I started writing the book after I made a big mistake, uh, and, and I like to try and uh, be teachable and able to be corrected. Uh, I hope your so, wife is listening to this because you just admitted that you make mistakes and that you were wrong. And uh, she sent me a list of things to ask you here on the air. Uh, but I don't think I'm going to do that uh, to you. But uh, I do appreciate your humility there. Uh, well, yeah, it's... Uh, she didn't really send me a hard, list. Hard. You're safe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I... I had the opportunity to preach to a small congregation that I was a part of uh, many years ago, and I wanted to talk about the obedience of Noah and sort of w what that uh, story had for us in, in the story of the flood. And as I went through the, the story, I found myself just kind of uh, repeating the same stuff I'd always been taught that, um, you know, Noah was righteous. That's why he was saved. And obviously his family were, were good people and everybody else, um, must've been unrepentant. Uh, and you know, that they were just so depraved and so, so far gone in their wickedness that they couldn't possibly have been forgiven. Uh, so God was justified in sending flood because, uh, you know, they, they were just horrible people who didn't deserve to live. Mm. That was what I'd been brought up with. And uh, probably not those exact words, but something to that effect came out of my mouth and then, about five minutes after I finished speaking, I thought to myself, you know what, there's something wrong with this. This doesn't sound like the God that I know from the New Testament, and I believe that we, we've got to be consistent. This is the same God, right? It's, it's, it's one unified story from beginning to end about our loving creator who came to earth to forgive our sin. And so I thought, well, I clearly don't understand this story as well as I need to. And as I went back over the lead up to the flood narrative, I found that word Nephilim sitting there. And I thought, you know, this is the only word so far that I've seen that doesn't get translated in, in the book version I was reading, I think I had, I don't know, NIV or something. That they just leave the word there and they don't attempt to do anything with it. You know, they translate everything else. And I thought, right, well, maybe I don't get what this word means. And, of course, I looked at the King James next and it said giants. And I was like, oh, well, this is this is interesting. Uh, nobody, nobody talks about giants. What's going on here? And, you know, I got fascinated. Well, I fell down the rabbit hole. Uh, a good 10 years or so of research went into me trying to get hold of this concept and how it worked and what that meant for the flood narrative and, and how God was working in that story. And eventually I thought, you know, I should be taking notes. I should be writing this stuff down. And then I went, you know what, I'm, I've written so much stuff, I might as well make a book. So it was another few years before I had the material together and decided to put the book out. 
And yeah, it's been slowly, slowly but surely getting out there. Uh, and in the book, I basically go through this whole uh, Genesis 6 issue uh, piece by piece. Um, some people have called my book a bit of a systematic theology because I go through pretty much everything that I could find that was relevant to this narrative of these giants that existed before the flood and afterward. And I've basically tried to make sense of that in a way that you can apply it in your day-to-day Christian life um, by extension. Mm. So that's been a really uh, big process. It was, a, it was a huge learning curve for me because, um, as I say, I started from a position of being absolutely wrong about everything there and just had so much to learn, and I really enjoyed that process. And along the way, I just found a tremendous encouragement to trust in the character of God and to believe his promises and most importantly, I think, to make sure that uh, I live my own life in a way that demonstrates my loyalty and appreciation to God for what he's done uh, in my life and for the world. Now, did you find the, the community of believers where you are uh, was open to big questions or did you get pushback from your community? Uh, was it... Uh, I'm just curious how how somebody who was uh, taking a line that they were very comfortable with, noticing, oh, I think I'm missing a piece here, and then bringing it up. Was it something that you had friends that were excited along with you, or was this kind of a private journey that you were on? How did how did that unfold? Well, as I say, the initial context of of all this was my address to the the church that I was in. And I was fortunate that it was a small independent church where they were quite open to uh, ideas as long as you were uh, drawing it from the Bible and you could just, you know, demonstrate uh, from the from the text. And I mean, they're quite uh, a, a literalist sort of uh, congregation. So uh, at that early stage in my journey, that was fine. Um, and they really appreciated it, actually, because I followed up with, uh, another message to sort of clarify and to uh, set right uh, some of the misconceptions that I'd had, which I'd uh, unwittingly uh, foisted upon them. <laughs> and, you know, they were really gracious and really intrigued as well and really interested. So that was encouraging. Um, well, I hope a lot of pastors and, were listening to what you just said, because in ministry, there's, and Jacob, you may have thoughts on this, but sometimes the desire to prove yourself right trumps really understanding the text. Uh, Jacob, have you found in, in your quest for understanding, because you're chewing through a lot of the th- same things that, that Tim is here, uh, how, how do you cope with having questions that make other people uncomfortable? Um, I'm, I try to go back and, and have them, like, are you willing to consider go back in the scripture? And, and it was very uncomfortable for me to think that like you get a decent education, a Bible education or seminary. And for you not to think about, where did you go to school? I'm not saying it. <laughs> Word of life. That's why. Okay. So um, to get an education and to, to see to like, how do we miss all of this stuff? So and I try to promote people to, would you, would you be willing to consider Slow down, think about why these things are there. Because when I was teaching over at Troy Christian schools, and when I was walking through some of this stuff as we we're going through Genesis, I was forced to slow down because I'm teaching them, you know, kind of uh, verse by verse through chapters and stuff. And I was faced also with Genesis chapter six. And I know I've heard of Nephilim, but, you know, they come and go. But it's like, okay, but you have giants in Canaan, you know, in the promised land, and you have. Goliath, and then I ran by this passage, and the sons of Anak were there. And then it kind of goes on. I'm like, what is what are these little blurbs coming from? You know, and so it made me think a lot more about this kind of this narrative, this giant narrative. But also back in Genesis three, and when I, there'll be enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And I just I 
sat and thought about that for a while. So anyway, I asked people, what does that mean? What do you think that means? Because what doesn't happen typically in church is, you know, we kind of throw out a quick explanation and people don't push back. Instead of asking questions, having them go home and dig into it, um, I think for them to try to discover things, hopefully what it does, it promotes them to get back in the Bible. And and then you can sit down and they could be kind of excited, like, I don't know, I've been looking at this. And anyway, so I, I try to ask them, would you be willing to consider that the narrative you've been given um, may be a little different or there might be more to it? And so if they're willing to do that, then you can start moving into like asking questions and having them dig in. And I try to dig in with them because I don't have all the answers. Um, but I know like in this journey through Genesis, we went just 1 through 11, 1 through 12, um, was really exciting for our church family because I, I I feel like I got them to a place where it's like they were willing just to sit with the scriptures and dig in and and at least consider what I'm saying, which some of the things are what it would have been I would have considered a little absurd right um, like the genealogy some of the genealogy stuff was very interesting to me but and I'm still I'm going through it we were going through it again I'm learning new stuff this is there's it's just endless so I grew up in West Virginia which is wild and wonderful it's mountains it's forests and it has a lot of trails and people spend a lot of time walking the trails uh, but the really exciting stuff is not on the trails. It's off in the weeds when you when you get off the trail and you start really just exploring. And I found that the the text of scripture is kind of like that. It's it covers a tremendous amount of content and stuff there, but we've made little paths through these books that when you take a step off of the established route through this piece of scripture, people really look at you funny, like why why are you why are you wandering around in there? Why why are you in the brush? You need to get back on the track so we can make distance, you know, through the book here. And one of the things that, you know, your book was helpful for me and, and your podcast and, and lots of other folks, Michael Heiser in particular, has has been really to, to not focus so much on being right as much as focusing on loving the Word of God and just ex- being excited about what it's talking about. And when I don't know what it's talking about— saying, I don't know what it's talking about, but look at this. This is beautiful. This is really neat. And and so I, I wish that it was more common in in Christian circles uh, to do some exploring, to, to take questions, and, and not to view other people's opinions as threats as much as it is just other people are also reading and thinking through the text. And there's a lot to be learned uh, I just wish we didn't fight so much about silly things, and we just really were excited about the text. Is I what got, I'm saying. I got a question for you, Tim. So, yeah, go ahead. So, and again, you you may have mentioned this, but I'm just curious in your thoughts because this is where I'm I'm I've been pondering this for about six months, and I don't have an answer yet. Um, as you've been looking at the Noah's, the the, the is this story, about the curse? No, n- no. But I I would love when we get off here. I have some more questions. I will edit that out. No, that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> um, as was in the days of Noah, so will be in the Son <laughs> of Man. Now I feel comes. like a hypocrite. I just messed him up. No, as it was in, in the, the days, days of, of Noah, Noah, so will be in the Son of Man. Comes. Um, do you think that there could be any connection to um, uh, these hybrid beings, Nephilim, um, in in the days to come, or already here? There, have you have you thought about that at all? Uh, yeah, that's something that I do talk about in the book because. Yeah, you, there is a lot of interest in that topic uh, all over the place. And, yeah, I, it's, it's one that uh, I'm, even, even now, having published a book about it and, and having been speaking about this stuff for a couple of years now, uh, I still uh, just, just wrestle with that and, and try and sort of tease those things out and, and see what works and what doesn't um, because in my own view, I, I don't think that we're uh, living in an age or expecting an age where we're going to see, um, you know, crazy uh, giant people emerging on the earth um, the way that um, Genesis 6 uh, indicates uh, I don't think that we're talking sort of Jack and the Beanstalk scale creatures like uh, First Enoch sort of uh, 
exaggerates and <laughs> talks yeah. about. Um, but you know, I I do think that uh, those those words of Jesus have to ring true to a to a to an extent. So if we're understanding it correctly, we're going to see it, right? And maybe it's in front of our eyes right now. Maybe there's something uh, in, in the days to come. So let but, me let me let me see if I'm hearing you right. You you think there is another incursion of Nephilim coming, but they're not here, giants. But not giants. That's kind of where I'm at. Uh, I'm kind of leaning towards that direction. We're trying to get you in trouble here, uh, is what we're trying to do. Come on, that. Tim. <laughs> yeah, no, I see that. Well, look, I I think that uh, those those spirits, right? Those 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 giants when they died, right? They've left traces behind. Okay, that's the New Testament authors understood that that was the origin of demons. Now they haven't gone away. All right. I mean, obviously Jesus has dealt with a lot of that in the course of his ministry, but you know we still see evidence of that in the world today. So, you know, are those forces still at work? Absolutely. And are we likely to see an intensification of those efforts uh, as as we attempt to counteract them and, and bring the knowledge of God to the world? Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily going to involve uh, 10-foot-tall people, uh, but I, I would definitely argue that those same spirits and, and, and powers are at work and will continue to be for some time. Uh-oh. Things just got good. We've got him being honest with us now. Normally people try to, you know, they'll they'll him and haw about things, but I appreciate you coming right out and saying what you're thinking. And and ultimately a lot of this is mystery. Like it hasn't happened yet. And and so we're on one side of this and we're looking and we're just talking about it. You know, we're wondering what's going to happen. Ultimately the text is clear. Jesus wins. Yep. The, the Lord is the God yeah. of gods, the Lord of lords, and we are loyal to him. But I, I, I just really enjoy the bantering back and forth. Jacob and I argue constantly. Uh, I like to poke the bear. And about lots John's of things. John's a bear. I'm a bear. I, I don't look like a clean cut person. I have a big beard and am large. So, but uh, I, there's another question that Jacob and I have been going on, and I guess this is as good a time as any to break into it into oh, the air yes. here. But uh, Jacob has a has a theory about uh, the curse of uh, of the earth. In, in Genesis 3. And uh, and so we're going to recruit you into this on either my side or Jacob's side. And my opinion of you will, will greatly change based upon your initial gut reaction uh, about this. So, His gut reaction will be like everyone else's. It'll be nope. No, no, no. So I was teasing him a minute ago, but Jacob and I go back and forth about this. Go ahead and, and unload your wild, baseless theory and uh, we'll we'll let people think about it. It's not really baseless. I, I love Jacob a lot. Tim, wait, I'm just going to make the statement, and I'll just let it sit, and you can respond. The curse right. of the ground given to, uh, or because of Adam's, um, what he told Adam, ended at the flood or after the flood. Bum, bum, bum. Jacob thinks the earth is no longer cursed because he's crazy. And thinks that way. Let's, I, on no, the other no, hand, no, no, I, on the other hand, just let it have, soak in from it. Tim's like joy to the world. And the second verse says, "No more shall thorns and something grow." Yeah. Nor, and so, since it's in a Christmas carol, it has to be a fact. That's just how it is. I know it's uncomfortable, and every farmer likes to fight me over this, you know. But we I'm live like, in farm country. We have no so. clue what the ground was like then. I mean, that's the <laughs> difficult part. It's like, well, there was no way God placed. I'm like, what was Adam and Eve tending in the garden then? If there was nothing to take care of, if there's nothing to no, pull. No, I'm with you there. I'm with you there. But just on your thoughts of that, Tim, do you think of the curse of the earth as still being around or as having been cleansed by the baptism of the flood? gut reaction without any research we will judge you accordingly i know what he's gonna say he's not gonna be with me <laughs> no, Tim, just jump on my side and i'll explain later <laughs> uh, i i would begin by saying that 
the Garden of Eden was a unique place on the earth. And we should expect then that the rest of the world wasn't the same, right? Right. Now, Adam and Eve leave that place and enter the world. And they soon discover that now they don't have everything laid on and provided for them, and they're going to have to work. Kind of and like we do now, Jacob. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, also, you have this idea uh, in sort of symbolic terms, and this was the kind of thing that uh, biblical writers, uh, rabbis, church fathers, you know, sort of kicked around these ideas that there was some uh, symbolic stuff going on here in the text and that what God has pronounced in terms of, you know, the, this curse and what the earth is going to bring forth has something to do with powers of evil at work in the world as a result of what Adam and Eve have initiated. And that would connect then to Jesus's parable of the, the sower, right? The thorns and the thistles that rise up and choke out the seed. He's nodding. Yeah. You guys can't see him, but I can. Because I can see to Australia. So, there's that. And then you have uh, things like the uh, Second Temple period literature around uh, Abraham. Okay, so uh, I can't remember the exact title of the... Uh, the story offhand, but there's a uh, a development of Genesis 15 and the the uh, vision that well, actually Abraham's asleep, right? So I guess it's a dream vision that he has where God takes him uh, into the heavens, and that was interpreted as. Uh, Abraham was kind of removed to be where God is, like external to creation, and he could see everything. Like he looked down upon the stars, right? He's he's way up there, and and he gets told that uh, you know his his seed are going to be like part of heaven, and uh, in in this and and this is an expansion development of that story. Uh, that, that comes about later, uh, and that uh, he will trample on these thorns, right, to destroy them. And the thorns were thought to be like uh, evil spirits and, and that kind of thing. So that's all sort of drawn from this idea that prevailed in, in Jewish thought that the thorns and thistles produced from the ground were as a result of these uh, angelic incursions like what we see in Genesis 6 mm. and that sort of thing. And it kind of extrapolated from all that, that what we were dealing with was not, uh, you know, the normal uh, day-to-day experience of agriculture and, and you know, these prickles that uh, we have to pull out of our shoes. Mm. But we were talking about... Um, a, a spiritual battle and an ongoing struggle with uh, trying to live in righteousness in a place where uh, we're subject to the effects of uh, supernatural evil. So what you're saying is that I am right and Jacob is wrong, right? That's, Tim, that's Tim's going to have to study and, and consider this ah, uh, for a moment before I he answers. I love this. I need you to come back more often because you made it sound very smart, and I appreciate that. No, I, I do. I think the Bible is very nuanced, and none of these questions, and that's why it's fun uh, when Jacob and I argue about stuff. It's, it isn't really about proving yourself right or wrong. I think the Bible does mean something, but... I just love the Word of God, and I love talking with other people about it and seeing the connections, not just into the Gospels, but I didn't realize that there was a, a Second Temple uh, piece of literature that talked about that. So that that means our argument is much older than it's we thought it was. 
Just kidding. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's awesome. Which makes it great. Well, my friend, we are coming up towards the end of our uh, our time here. Um, but I, I would like to encourage everyone to check out, check out Tim's book, uh, do you mind just uh, letting people know the name of it, where they can find it, and then also give a plug for uh, your podcast as well? Sure, yeah. Everything that I do you can find through the website giantanswers.com. And from there you can link to Amazon and pick up the book, which is Answers to Giant Questions. Uh, the podcast has the same name. You can link to the Raven Creek Social Club website from there and get the podcast there, but it's probably easier to find it just on your podcast app. So wherever you get your podcast and you're listening to one right now, so that's not going to be hard. Uh, just search for Answers to Giant Questions. You'll find us there. And, yeah, as I say, the book's out on Amazon. So, yeah, and all over the place, you get me on the social media too. We have a discussion group for answers to giant questions and you're welcome to join that and uh, get involved in the conversations. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's about all I have there. Well, we appreciate you coming on and talking with us. And uh, for our friends out there, this is Tim Stedman. He comes from the land down under where the women glow and men thunder. And we are just excited that you were able to chat with us today. Brother, we're praying for you and for your ministry. And we just want to say, God bless you and your wife and your kids, and uh, we hope that you survive the spiders and their ilk as they continue to invade your space. But may God bless you, my friend, and for all the listeners out there to the two trees, we love you guys, and please, we hope you remember that the Lord Jesus is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, mighty and awesome.